in the year 427 BC. The city of Athens had warred against the Spartans for seven long years amid the Peloponnesian War that saw the worst extremes of conflict and chaos in the Greek world since the invasions of the Persians. The Athenians had endured the loss of their leader Pericles, their guiding hand in peace and war, and upheaval at home as his successors pushed for an expansion of Athens' war effort, ratcheting up new aggression against the Spartans and their allies. The democratic government the Athenians enjoyed and took special pride in only made the turbulence worse as ambitious demagogues and silver-tongued radicals jockeyed to fill the vacuum left by Pericles as Athens' leading voice. The event that happened here in the year 427 was a terrible symptom of the breakdown of moral and material life inflicted by the Peloponnesian War a monstrous decision, and a chaotically desperate attempt to undo it. The debate in Athens's democratic assembly over the fate of rebels in a city under their imperialistic control, the famed city of Mytilene on the island of Lesbos, was fueled by cruelty and confusion at the same time, and revealed the real extent to which the once glorious Athens, in those grueling years, had seemingly lost its way. Mytilene was an ancient and illustrious city, home to the celebrated poets Sappho and Alcaeus, and in the years after the last invasion into Greece by the Persian Empire, had joined up in a new alliance forged with Athens at its head, an alliance called the Delian League. The League was intended to provide a standing wall of defense and communication to head off the threat of a third invasion by Persia, if such a day ever came. And in exchange for membership, Athens demanded tribute in money, ships, or soldiers to the common cause. Over the fifty years that the Delian League grew in scope and manpower, Athens' own ambitions to control its allies and project its naval power across the Aegean Sea became more and more transparent. Allies were coerced into pledging their support to the Delian League. Those who dissented were forbidden to rescind their membership, and the alliance that promised fairness and security for all exposed itself for what it was, an Athenian empire in all but name. When this naked imperialism sparked the fears of Sparta and its own league, the Peloponnesian League, marched on Athens to restore the balance of power, the mighty resources of the Delian League were ready at Athens' disposal. With the death of Pericles in the year 429 and the growing faction of Athenian leaders calling for full-scale war with Sparta, the stage was set for decades of war across the Greek world. In the year 427, the people of Mytilene had had enough of Athens' demands. As one of the remaining oligarchic governments of the Delian League, who kept their own council, they determined to reach out to the Spartans and Thebans, enemies of Athens, 
requesting their aid to escape from under its heel. With their backing, the Mytilenians and two other cities of Lesbos joined forces, prepared fortifications, and hired mercenaries in a bid to resist Athens militarily. But the fourth major city of the island, Methymna, had a democratic government staunchly aligned with Athens. The Methymnians alerted the Athenian government to the brewing rebellion led by Mytilene, and Athens, now committed to war and anxious to prevent defections to the Peloponnesian League, wasted no time in sending a fleet to intimidate the rebels into submission on the pretext of defending their ally Methymna from its treacherous neighbors. A whirlwind of fighting, negotiations, then more fighting and more negotiations ensued. Envoys from Sparta and Thebes arrived, but the scant support offered by the bigger powers to the Mytilenean resistance meant that they couldn't compete with the Athenians for long. The revolt was suppressed. Hundreds of hostages were boarded on Athens' warships, including the Spartan general Salythus, who had broken through Athenian lines to arrive at Mytilene and attempted desperately to support the siege by fitting out the citizens themselves in soldiers' armor. They were all shipped back to Athens to stand before the democratic assembly and bargain for their lives. The Mytilenians awaited the outcome with bated breath, but events in Athens would soon prove that any hopes for mercy were badly misplaced. When the Athenian fleet returned to the imperial city's magnificent harbor, it was received amid a wave of public anger at the Mytilenean rebels. With little time for deliberation, the Spartan commander Salythus was put to death, along with the crowd of other prisoners brought back on the ships. The eyes of the city were fixed upon the assembly, where the bigger matter of how to punish the city of Mytilene had erupted with calls to deliver brutal vengeance. It was decided, in that atmosphere of rage, that all the men of Mytilene were to be slaughtered, and the women and children torn from their homes, stripped of all their safety, and sold into slavery. An example was to be made, so that no ally of Athens would dare reconsider their obligations to the Delian League. The course of action was debated and decided immediately as tempers surged, and the plan was sealed with the dispatch of a ship to convey the orders to the Athenian troops still stationed at the rebel city. A swift Athenian trireme bearing the command sailed forth, its three banks of oars breaking the waves and thrusting the painted hull across the Aegean Sea to spell the doom of Mytilene. But here is where the story took an unexpected turn. When the day's business was done, and the sun sank below the western horizon, the explosive wrath that fueled the Athenians' decision began to ebb away. The choice to inflict death and enslavement on a frightening scale upon Mytilene began to sit uncomfortably 
with the democratic citizens of Athens responsible for it. Was it pity for the innocence of Mytilene, who had been swept up in events without bad intent? Was it the self-image of their community that Athenians still held dear, of a city that was proud yet open to dissent, strong but generous in victory, the kind of city that Pericles had made them believe in? Whatever it was that moved the hearts and minds of the Athenians that fateful night, when the sun rose the next day, a second meeting ensued in the assembly, where the stage was set for a heated contest of wills that would go down in history and determine the future of thousands. The famous Mytilenean debate saw one faction arguing for a bloody-minded adherence to the first decision to see through the plan to annihilate the rebel city. The other side argued for a reversal of course, to soften their vengeance against the Mytilenians with moderation, and send a second ship across the sea, moving with all speed to head off the grim orders of execution and slavery carried by the first. The keenest observer of events during the Peloponnesian War in Athens was Thucydides, a general at the time of this debate, but soon to be disgraced and exiled from his city, when he would undertake to write a grand history of the war. His testimony of the debate held in the Athenian assembly captures the hot tempers and skillfully crafted arguments on both sides of this battle of ideas, whose positions are represented by two speakers. Defending the initial decision, was the militant rabble-rouser Cleon, who had risen as a hawkish opponent of the weak policies of his predecessor Pericles. And advocating for altering the decision was Diodotus, a more moderate voice. Cleon was the first to make his case, thundering with mighty words and rousing the passions of all hearers with the bluster that made him famous. He charged the assembly with being weak in the face of a crisis, that the Athenian democracy lacked the teeth to govern the empire it had won. Safe and sound in their well-protected city, the decision-makers had no fear of plots or treachery, and they imagined that the whole world was the same way. But he laid before them that their empire must rule by fear not by compassion, and it was only the power of Athens that forced their subjects to obey. Their taste for speech-making and debating, instead of cold, hard action, had made Athens frail, and failing to stand firm in its decision would only invite more revolts from rebellious allies and the ruin of the empire. All the Greek world had a lesson to learn that the cost of betraying Athens was devastation. On the other side of the issue, Diodotus was the next to speak. Haste and high emotions, he said, were the worst enemies of making good decisions, and so he suggested a lesser sentence for the Mytilenians. But he pled his case on the grounds Cleon had already set out, 
unwilling to play into the caricature of weak compassion that his opponent had used to poison the discourse. Diodotus made perfectly clear the guilt of Mytilene and the necessity of punishing the rebels. But he sought to limit the scope of that punishment, restricting it only to the true leaders and participants in the revolt. And this should be done in Diodotus's careful argumentation to achieve ultimately the same goal that Cleon had advocated for, Athens's self-interest, its continued glory, strength, and empire. Sparing the majority of Mytilene's citizens would ensure that their valuable contributions to the Delian League's war chest would continue under Athens's watchful eye. After all, a city reduced to ashes could pay no taxes. And as the Greek world's leading democracy, Athens had to maintain its image as a champion of the people. Sparing the common folk of Mytilene, but targeting their oligarchic government of the wealthy and powerful, the real instigators of the revolt. This would send a message that Athens would stand by the cause of the many, not the few. And showing mercy here, could discourage the masses from seeing through future rebellions until the bitter end by suggesting there was hope of compassion if they realized the futility of resistance and gave up the revolt. Vigilance against uprising in the future, rather than one ruthless act in the present, would better sustain Athenian power. When Diodotus's speech was ended and the debate rested, the assembly took a vote on the fate of Mytilene for a second time. The outcome was almost exactly equal, split between the factions in favor of making an example of the city or restricting vengeance to the ringleaders. But in the end, with the count taken, the milder opinion espoused by Diodotus had narrowly won the day. Any relief enjoyed by its advocates was overshadowed by the need for the swiftest action. The first ship was still sailing toward Mytilene, and a second had to be sent with all haste, moving quickly enough to overtake the first and change the orders after a day's head start. The second trireme was staffed with two full crews of rowers to ensure fresh muscle at the benches in every shift and generous food and wine were packed to keep their energy and spirits high. Against the odds, the second ship glided across the Aegean toward Lesbos and arrived at Mytilene just in time to forestall the massacre and enslavement of the citizens. The new orders were conveyed, the first day's decision was reversed, and the people of Mytilene were spared. Per the assembly's commands, the leaders of the revolt were put to death, and for good measure, the city's walls and defenses were torn down, demolishing any chance of further resistance. Athens took hold of the entire island of Lesbos, and Mytilene was reinstalled with a democratic government, closely held under the imperial eye. Athens's war against Sparta, stoked up to new fervor 
by the militant factions in Athens was far from finished. Mytilene had barely avoided total destruction, but it was hardly the last time atrocities were inflicted on smaller cities by the likes of Athens or Sparta, and communities like Plataea and Milos would not have the fortune that Mytilene had had. But by the end of it all, when the Peloponnesian War, decades on, would grind to a halt, it was Athens itself that would pay the highest price.